Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of the mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Katerina Scaramelli, Research Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Earth and Environment at Boston University. We will be talking about her book, How to Make a Wetland, Water and Moral Ecology in Turkey, recently published by Stanford University Press. Thank you very much, Dr. Scaramelli, for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> It's a pleasure. Um, So at the New Books Network, we like to start by learning about our guests' backgrounds and the genesis of their work. So could you tell us about how you came to anthropology and how you conceived of this book? So I was born in a small town in the mountains by a lake. And so I always thought about how people move through the landscape and how they make sense of the landscape and how they transform it and how they're transformed by it in turn. And I thought that ecology was an interesting lens to get to it, but I was mostly interested in social human practices. And so this is how I came to anthropology. And because I was born in Northern Italy, and Italy is a setting where people like to make claims about the timeless, unchanging nature of landscapes. And so my work has been partly like a response to these ideas. It emphasized the politics of nature, the changing quality of landscapes, and even uh, the movements of people through them, and the kind of constant reinventions of various kind of cultures of place and nature and environment, and the politics of certain ideas of environment that we take for granted that are rooted in 20th century colonial histories. And when I got to anthropology, because I couldn't choose what to study, uh, I realized I could pursue these questions about placemaking and landscape. And I, um, I did that in Turkey, which was a familiar enough context. We had Turkish neighbors uh, growing up in Milan. My parents were traveling a lot to Turkey for work. Uh, my mom is a fairly decent intermediate Turkish speaker, at least uh, she was back in the day. And I, at the time, uh, I was really interested in the political ecology of conservation areas. And also at the, t- at the same time, I was interested in the object of water and particularly like how water comes into being as an object, as a category, and the tension between water as something that's multiple and water as something that's homogeneous, standard, abstract, that can be c- calculated and, and made uh, claims on. And this fairly abstract concerns really were materialized in a more kind of empirical interest in how how do people make sense of the landscapes in which they live and on the grounds of what kinds of knowledge they make claims about it and how is power refracted through this claim making and practices. And initially I thought a really good place to study that was uh, high mountain hydropower contestations in northeast of Turkey. And I ended up in fact, following the flow of, of, of river water downstream to the deltas, partially to understand water in a more kind of expansive ways and following suggestions of my interlocutors at the time. 
And I arrived at the Delta, and the Delta was a place I couldn't fully understand. The boundaries of land and water are somehow ambiguous. I didn't quite understand the politics of agrarian, industrial, and water use as, as it really comes together in, this, in these places. And I also personally feel quite uncomfortable in a sea level deltaic landscape, I'm much more at ease in the mountains. And so it dawned on me one day that maybe this place that was fairly uncomfortable for me to be in would be a good one to start <laughs> decentering these this questions. Um, and so this is how I came to study wetland areas and p- particularly how certain deltaic sites are delineated as wetland areas. And then I started looking into how the, the category of the wetland came into being as as a kind of scientific and legal and political category that describes really radically different environments and ecologies and biomes that become somewhat comparable. So you can think about the Kusurmak Delta wetlands, one of my field sites, but also the lagoons in Venice and the Everglades as places that are all wetlands and somehow can be counted as such and kind of compared. And this was fascinating to me. And uh, as part of my research, I look into how this category uh, emerged. And then um, in my ethnographic work, I looked at different different groups of people who live and work in two wetland areas in Turkey and how they make sense of the transformation of these deltas into sites of environmental conservation and how that fits in with other kind of layered transformations uh, of the environment and various kinds of resource ex- extractions and economic life so yeah that's wonderful and you know one of the reasons i love having these conversations is to you know learn precisely what you just told us like the stories behind how these books came into being um and you gave us a great sense of why you ended up in turkey and in questions of ecology and you know i want to dig a bit more into that question and ask you to give a little more background into the Kızılırmak and Gediz deltas, which are the geographical fossae of the book, the particular deltas you focus on in Turkey. And why these wetlands? So how can these wetlands and wetlands in general expand our understandings of political and moral ecologies? So first I wanted to talk a little bit about how I came to these deltas. And this was, I think one day I was in Ankara in the office of an environment, an environmental NGO. And I was talking with uh, someone who worked there about just the politics of water in Turkey and what it meant to think of water and livelihood and struggles for livelihood through struggles for water. And um, she was talking to me about the work that she'd been doing on wetlands and connecting uh, wetland conservation to questions of culture and, and, and rights and livelihood. And I wasn't exactly familiar with the term. And I also couldn't locate what wetland areas would be in the country. I hadn't, I definitely encountered them. I hadn't paid attention to them or read them as, as wetlands. Um, and, um, she showed me several maps of places in Turkey that are considered internationally recognized wetland conservation areas. And then there is different national categories of how wetland areas are designated. And there is a hierarchy of how they're designated. And this has practical implication for the kind of activities and land planning that can be done in those sites. 
But I decided it would be really interesting to focus on some of the largest and most uh, renowned, at least amongst environmental advocates and scientists, uh, wetland sites in the country. And because one of the cool things that the idea of the wetland does is to connect places that are you know, ecologically and historically distinct, that to understand the work that this category did for the politics of water in Turkey, I, I had to look at more than one place. Initially, I thought I would look at three places, and that became impractical uh, for the kind of time and resources that we have available as PhDs and, and postdocs. But um, I started looking at delta areas, which uh, in Turkey host the biggest, you know, geographically uh, largest wetland conservation areas. And they're also, again, sites where uh, agricultural production happens alongside uh, industrial areas and expanding urban exurbs. And there are sites where everything else that happened downstream, uh, upstream on the river, collects uh, downstream. And the Kuzurumak Delta, which is on the Black Sea, and the Gediz Delta, which is on the Aegean Sea, were interestingly parallel. They had interestingly parallel uh, conservation histories, at least. They were nominated uh, as part of the Ramsar uh, Wetlands. That's an international organization that sets some of the standards and guidelines for wetland conservation worldwide, which different countries uh, that are signatories to a wetland agreement then uh, adapt in their own legislation, at least in theory. They were added to that list in the same year. Um, People who'd worked as environmental uh, consultants and scientists in one delta would often speak to the other delta kind of comparatively. And in fact, one delta's management plan had been modeled on the other and the management system of the delta uh, applied in in one of the two deltas were then later copied on the other. And wetland residents themselves had um, gossip about the various conservation restrictions implemented in the other delta, uh, which made them concerned about uh, what could happen in their own home. And I thought that this constant kind of comparison between these two geographically quite uh, far away uh, deltas are about, you know, a 16 hours drive or a couple of hours on the airplane plus uh, taxis and minibuses to to get there. But that there was an interesting connection between these two places. Um, there, the, in, in terms of landscape, even though the ecology is quite distinct, they're both host... Um, medium-sized market towns. There is a major metropolis near uh, each of them. So Izmir is just south of the Gediz Delta and Samson is just east of the Xermak Delta. Their landscape is characterized by high-yield, intensive capitalist agriculture. The agriculture area is fairly recent. It expanded alongside the expansion of irrigation and drainage over the course of the 20th century. Um, There are sprawling exurban um, gated communities for the, the, the growing uh, urban middle class who can no longer uh, afford an apartment in the city. There, is, there are sites of speculative investments or industrial parks. There are also um, places that both have an interesting uh, cosmopolitan histories. There were places that uh, had communities of um, Greek and Armenians that were later displaced and or uh, exchanged. Uh, they were the receiving uh, places of uh, displaced uh, Muslim subjects from from the Balkans, uh, but also places where 
farmers from mountainous areas uh, had come in the 1950s and 60s looking for uh, wage labor and perhaps the opportunity to purchase land. So there there are sites of in and out migration and and population movements and um, in different ways and shaped by somewhat distinct regional histories, even though they're within the same contours of the the making of the Turkish Republic as a place of... uh, that uh, sought to c- construct uh, the, the idea of having homogeneous citizens, and this was engineered through the transformation of land and water and the movement of people and the changing of names. And uh, both deltas, because they were seaside locations and because they had been uh, progressively uh, drained and settled as agricultural land, had this really interesting parallel and convergent history that um, was important for me to to write through my work, even though my research is largely um, ethnographic. And so when I was looking at how Turkish scientists had remade this agrarian deltas, part of these agrarian deltas into conservation areas in the late 20th century, starting from the 1980s, I was interested in some of the legacies of these layer transformations of place, and histories of migration and cosmopolitanism, some of the histories that uh, couldn't really be talked about and couldn't really be told because the subjects of the histories were no longer there and the people living in the Delta uh, themselves had migrated in or, or, or were talking about histories of war and trauma and really not talking uh, about them. So that really became so important, at least for me, to understand in the politics of nature in this in these two sides. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you very much for this, you know, both historically and ethnographically rich answer. I think it really helps um, for our listeners who haven't read your book yet um, to sort of picture these places and how you came to these questions. Um, and I want to follow up with a question that addresses one of your main arguments. So you beautifully show us that politics are not only projected onto non-humans, but that people make politics through them, through your beautiful ethnography. So uh, I'm wondering for you, what is theoretically and politically at stake in that reorientation towards politics through non-humans? Yeah, this is a great question and one of the core interventions of the book. And the starting point is one that uh, many of us working in the, and writing in the 21st century have embraced, which is an attempt to decenter humans from understanding politics of livability, while also paying attention to human power relations and um, the human constructiveness of certain even ideas about nature and ecology. So there is this displacement, but also reinsertion and um, and work unpacking terms that had been taken for granted as objective descriptors of ecology. And the work of decentering humans from the politics of livability means uh, emphasizing symbiosis and connections um, and these connections are not necessarily, you know, connections between human and animals and plants and microorganisms and fungi and water, um, minerals, elements, 
And these connections are not lateral, of course. They are hierarchical. They are inflected through power relations. They are uh, sometimes violent. They can be coercive. They can lead to marginalization and exclusion. Um, They can express violence through them. And my approach was twofold. First was to take this symbiosis into account as I was writing about these landscapes. Um, But of course, I'm an anthropologist and my methodology relies on talking with people and following them along. And so the second aspect of of my approach, the the symbiotic relational understanding of uh, decentering humans from the pockets of livability was to understand how visions of politics were staked through exactly these relations and the relations were the relations mattered and the connections matter and they weren't just merely uh merely symbolical but they, they were they mattered in their kind of practical material sense so uh, to illustrate this point i thought i would talk maybe a little bit about the the politics of, of water buffaloes in the Xuramak delta uh, there used to be about 10,000 water buffaloes up until the 1960s, and the number dwindled, dwindled down to almost uh, none. And then it uh, recently uh, went up again. And this was through a politics of subsidies that encouraged local farmers to uh, grow their water buffaloes herds again. And there were two visions between this repopulation of the water buffaloes in the Delta. And one was the idea that buffaloes would bring economic vitality to uh, farmers. So an idea of like an economic future for the Delta. And the second, which was, uh, in fact, the initial driver for uh, the Buffalo subsidies uh, project was the idea that buffaloes would be workers to maintain the biodiversity of the marshes and the wetlands. And that a vision of conservation had to involve and include the buffaloes since historically they had been actors in these landscapes. And they had made and unmade the marshes. And without the buffaloes, you wouldn't have marshes. And this is why you now have, you know, more than 3,000 water buffaloes grazing at the heart of this conservation area. And this is interesting for the Turkish context in particular, because um, many conservation areas in Turkey, wetlands and forests and and grasslands have excluded uh, livestock because of concerns with land erosion and deforestation and, and overgrazing. So... In writing about buffaloes and particular paying attention to how uh, agricultural engineers understood buffaloes, but also particularly how farmers dealt with buffaloes and took care of buffaloes in their everyday life, I really tried to emphasize that for farmers in particular, it was really important to understand that individual buffaloes have preferences and personalities and histories, and that buffaloes might have some... uh, affordances as a, as a species, as a, as a collective, there are things that all buffaloes do, but then specific buffaloes might do them differently. And this really matters to a buffalo farmer, even farmers with like the largest herds. And so writing about the specificity of this buffalo um, caretaking uh, was important to me to understand the, the broader kind of agrarian politics of what does it mean to envision farmers as at once relics of tradition, having lost their traditions, in need of being retrained in the quote-unquote proper way of 
farming with buffaloes and at the same time being somewhat responsible for taking care of these animals that would be the engines and the workers maintaining the biodiversity of the future. So there is a lot projected on the farmers in the abstract, while in fact, the farmers themselves and their desires and their expertise and their knowledge and the class aspirations are quite marginal to how decisions are, are made. So this is the broader kind of political point, but but I get to it by also paying attention to kind of like the everyday practices of like a specific relationship between a farmer and a buffalo and how a wetland scientist might understand this relationship and how a local agricultural engineer might read into that. And what is at stake is actually the, the practice of the buffalo and the relationship between the buffalo body and the various kinds of other ecological relations in the Delta. And so this is, I think, what it means to to try and kind of recenter um, non-humans in, in our writing. And I know that um, in, in comparison to other colleagues that, that do that, I, I, I think I center human practices and human meaning making more than, than, than it could be done. And this was just partially of uh, the methods I, I, I chose, which was really trying to have uh, the the human farmer relationship kind of front and center of my writing instead of focusing on uh, the buffalo's own perspectives, which would require different different tools and I think different methodolog- methodological choices. So uh, this is just an example, and I do that in parts of the book. I write about feral horses and different kinds of birds, and again, I I, I choose particular animals, not because they're necessarily big kind of charismatic animals, but because the relationship between these animals and the uh, the places in the wetlands and, and place changes and how people make, ch- make sense of these animal practices and the places are, I think, really illuminating of environmental politics in, in the sense of like mundane, everyday, um, subtle, politics, a kind of everyday contestation through what it means to, to live in a place and who gets to decide what livelihood uh, should, should look like and who is included and, and excluded. Yeah, that's a wonderful example. Um, thanks so much for sharing that so vividly with us. Um, and, you know, I, my next question is about another sort of intervention or let's say theoretical access of your work and that's infrastructure. So you show us in your book that infrastructures and ecologies are mutually constituted. So could you tell us what it means to think of ecology and infrastructure mutually and how did you observe this during your fieldwork? So infrastructure is a term that anthropologists have used so much in the past decade. And I think it's a useful term to make sense of the built environment and work and the kind of knowledge that gets into constructing that. Um, I take an expansive understanding of infrastructure as an assemblage or a coming together of things, of people, knowledge. And this assemblage both connects but also transforms uh, places and people and the uh, subjects involved. Uh, infrastructures are built, they're maintained through work, they're invested with meanings, they're multiple, and they're always o- also refractive of various kinds of power relations. So the concept is capacious, uh, but also quite 
quite specific. And I wanted to see wetlands as infrastructural, and there are several reasons for it. One uh, which is quite apparent from being in a wetland landscape is that wetlands are really shaped by the infrastructural work of other things like factories or power plants, uh, canals, um, excavators, tractors. They're maintained uh, as, as conservation wetlands through infrastructures like the fence that might bound the conservation area or a map, the legislative infrastructure that um, limits what can be done in the wetland area and, and, and how and who gets to decide. So all of this is not my you know smart anthropological insight, but it's really apparent to anyone who lives uh, or work uh, near near a wetland. There is a certain kind of Euro-American environmentalist discourse that separated wetlands from development and infrastructure and posited them as, as opposite and posited wetlands as threatened by development and infrastructure and also the solution for development and uh, exploitative, destructive infrastructures. And I'm, I'm interested in the separation, and I think the separation is predicated on writing out long histories of uh, human uh, livelihood in the wetlands uh, for thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, it writes up, it writes out the kind of infrastructural work required to create a wetland area that is um, denominated as such and, and maintained as such. And it also writes out contemporary practices of, of work in the wetland, including uh, the work of farmers and fishermen, but also including the work of scientists themselves, um, which who produce uh, the, the wetland in specific kinds of places and, and shape its ecology and the human relations within it. The other aspect of this is that since the 1990s, wetlands have been recast uh, as environmental infrastructures themselves. And this stems from an understanding from ecosystem economics, the idea that ecologists uh, produce, perform work, and this work can be measured in economic terms, right? So uh, how much would it cost to clean up water in the same way that like a reed marsh would do, for example? And then this value and quantification can be used for make very specific policy arguments for land planning um, to favor certain kind of conservation decisions. And there is like, this, this field has been studied in really interesting ways and it's, you know, it, it has its limits, but it's one of the ways in which wetlands have become uh, seen by some uh, experts as a kind of infrastructure uh, themselves. And I think my starting point here was to take this as a kind of historically contingent particular discourse on wetlands. So I don't think the wetlands are infrastructural in, in that kind of uh, term, in that kind of way. And also to really pay attention to the political processes that result in the separation of wetlands from infrastructure. And I think the separation is like the outcome and not the starting point. And where the separation occurs, where people, where some people claim that the wetland ends and infrastructure begin itself has, has massive consequences. So I'm, I was interested in this kind of shifting um, discursive boundary between, you know, what, what some people consider to be a wetland and what they consider to be an infrastructure and, and how they theorize that these things are connected. Uh, 
many of my interlocutors and particularly people who work in the wetlands as, as fishermen or, or as farmers who are farming at the edge of a wetland landscape or in a wetland landscape, they, they actually never, well, they never talked about wetlands because the category is one that signals a certain kind of scientific expertise is a fairly uh, technocratic term. So they don't talk about wetland as a thing and they don't talk about place as separate from the work that people perform in it and various kinds of historical transformation of, of the place, all, all of which are infrastructural. So for example, um, in talking with fishermen and uh, in one of the fresh brackish water lakes in the Kizermak Delta, and in trying to understand uh, how they knew the lake and what they knew about the lakes, um, understanding the lakes couldn't really be separate from understanding the work of reed cutting that many of them do in a certain season. The reeds are cut for uh, internet for foreign markets. Um, they're, um, they're, the work is also predicating on getting to know certain seasonal canals that open and close in the wetlands, and these are shaped by hydrological wetland cycles, but also are shaped by the intake and, and outtake of drainage water from the nearby fields into the wetland lakes and then out into the into the sea. And particular decisions uh, by irrigation authorities about how much water, how much drainage water should pour it, flow into the lake and how much should then flow out in, in the sea actually shape the ecology of, of the lake. Um, when fishermen talk about new species of fish in the lakes that are eating the eggs of the fish species that they fish and uh, can escape their nets, they're also talking about the dams upstream on the river and speculating that perhaps this fish had been introduced as for recreational fishing and then had found their way down to the lake. So again, it's this kind of ideas of infrastructure entangled with and inseparable from uh, various kinds of places that uh, come to constitute what some might call a wetland. And so this was illuminating to me and something that I really learned from trying to understand um, these environments uh, from following kind of the practices of, of work in, in, wetland, in wetlands environments. And of course, there is always uh, a politics at place in a place into what kind of infrastructure is this wetland and what kinds of infrastructures are allowed to operate or not and who wins and who loses and um, who gets to control what kind of connections uh, can be drawn and should be drawn and, and how things should circulate. And so this was the, the other part of the way I understand ecology and infrastructure is interconnected and not just interconnected and that's it, but the, the, the connection can take different forms and there is you know, an environmental politics uh, at play there. Wow, that's wonderful. Um, and besides infrastructure, to me, movement and mobility seem to be an underlying thread throughout your work. Um, you know, we see the migrations of birds to bike paths, to movements of water buffaloes, as you mentioned, and even scientific expertise. So how do these forms of mobility inform claim-making around wetlands? So wetland is such a capacious term that it really allows to make places comparable. And in the 1990s, there was an interesting conversation amongst 
advocate working for a Bureau of um, Asian Wetland Conservation, so in um, a cluster of Asian countries. And they were debating whether the term wetland should be applied in a very kind of narrow sense or in a, in a broad sense. And they, they thought um, that the broad sense would be useful because it would be situated at the scale of, of planning and, and the water basin. And um, this was a conversation that I read just by leafing through an archive of uh, wetland uh, documents in the Ramsar office in, in Switzerland. But um, it's not surprising to anyone who is a wetland expert from one scientific field or the other that the category itself is, is constructed and contested and can be more or less capacious. The capaciousness of the category, of course, connects places together and makes them uh, comparable. And so I think of wetlands as national and international nodes in a network. They're connected in a network of, of birds. And this idea was really important to how certain elite Euro-American scientists thought about wetlands in the early 20th century. They were uh, interested in the management of water birds and to preserve water birds, you have to preserve all of the places where they might stop on their migration routes. And so these are wetlands that are um, can be really far away on opposite ends of the globe. And so they said to protect, you can't just protect a species of bird without protecting this kind of network of interconnected areas of shallow water. And so birds and science and the idea of the wetland already uh, a century ago formed this uh, network of, of things that were somewhat connected. But of course, wetlands are really interesting to think about the mobility of people. Um, they've been places where, not just in Turkey, but uh, in many, many other sites, um, wetlands have allowed the nomadic population to be, remain independent from states and empires, to hide, to resist, to make use of the flood poles and resources, and to read a landscape that's ever-changing and cannot be mapped and um, can only be known through practice and through uh, biographical experience. And uh, if wetlands have allowed and encouraged nomadic kinds of, of livelihoods, um, drained wetlands have also encouraged the, the movement of population, particularly as uh, populations had been resettled and relocated to become subjects of these newly cultivated um, agricultural landscapes. And, and people, Ottoman historians, have written about it as one uh, strategy of economic expansion in the late Ottoman Empire, uh, increase agricultural land and increase the number of population who will be reliable workers and, and taxable subjects in these lands. And so in the 20th century, wetlands in Turkey particularly become a place to resettle the various uh, incoming rural populations from the Balkans and also to resettle um, farmers and, and peasants from, from mountainous areas that are now asked to partake in this expanding uh, capitalist economy and become wage workers or perhaps landowners uh, themselves. So there's this movement of people, the movement of birds and science and, and scientists, the movement of wetland categories and science and the kind of legal implication of these categories, which is regionally specific, but uh, but also connected to um, various levels of um, wetland legislations uh, elsewhere. There is uh, the circulation of wetland management plans, 
uh, not just nationally, but over the course of my research, I observed, you know, Turkish scientists in the Gediz Delta talking with French scientists uh, working in Tour de Valat and kind of comparing what the management plans for one delta or the other looked like and trying to figure out what would be specific to, to, to the French Camargue and what could work in the Gadiz Delta and what could be strategies that worked um, across. And this was an interesting kind of circulation of, of expertise, uh, including the vision that certain Turkish wetlands would attract international scientists um, to, to learn um, from local Turkish scientists about wetland management and, and, and education and become places that are kind of internationally uh, renowned as, as sites of conservation. Um, you ask uh, how this forms of mobility inform uh, claim making. And I think for this claim making, uh, the capacity of accessing the network is fundamental. And this is refracted through power relations, being able to follow the network and being able to change it. Uh, it's it's really fundamental. And this is why, um, for example, um, farmers might have specific ideas of how they would like to be included in ideas about agricultural futures in the Delta and ideas about uh, conservation, but without having access to this network of connecting things, they are um, excluded from, from, from these processes, even though they are subjects of these uh, mobilities. Um, as, as migrant workers or as, as out-migrants and as uh, people using uh, technologies that uh, have come from other places. Um, so I think it's really important to think about the wetland through a lens of, of mobility and movement and, uh, and tracing both different things moving in and out of it, but also ideas about mobility and how they shape uh, ideas about wetlands. That's wonderful. And, you know, throughout our conversation, you also alluded to how um, you adopted certain methodologies to track these very complex entanglements and mobilities. So now I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you how you took up this arduous task, especially, you know, to trace how humans, materials, infrastructures, animals, plants and knowledge connect and in uneven ways even as you mentioned and what are some methodological suggestions you'd make to aspiring anthropologists or others who might want to take up this task thank you it's a great question you you made it sound much more uh, complicated than it is uh, <laughs> I thought we'd be able to talk practically about uh, what I did for this research in um, as I worked in these two deltas, the Gediz and the Kasramak Delta, and wanted to understand different social groups making uh, staking claims through these changing landscapes as conservation areas, but also as agrarian areas and as, and as fisheries and as in industrial areas as well. So practically this meant in Izmir, I worked alongside an environmental NGO headquartered in Izmir, but... Um, working uh, on, on wetland advocacy in the Gediz Delta, at least as part of their, their activities. And I also shadowed uh, people working in the Wetland Conservation Management um, Agency and, and several of the local scientists who had ongoing research uh, plans that involved doing fieldwork, ecological fieldwork in the, in the Delta. And um, 
and the various uh, state agencies that were part of all of these processes, of course, as, as major uh, decision makers and, and kind of power, power holders. And in the same site, um, I spent some time with the community of fishermen because they were um, really important um, groups that both held uh, knowledge about the wetland ecology and how it had changed historically and also were involved in several contestations about who could access uh, these deltas and how and what what uh, different people could do and really like livelihoods were at stake in, in this contestation. So it was important for me to spend time with fishermen and learn a little bit about fishing and in the deltas and also how the transformation of the conservation area had affected their capacity to fish. In the other delta, in the Kusurmak Delta, um, I spent most of my time in a in a fairly sprawling rural uh, village or uh, it, it technique formally it's it's not it's not a village it's a it's a neighborhood but it's a place of, of about three thousand uh, people there is other villages and neighborhoods in the delta it's a fairly um, intensely uh, populated agrarian deltas this is not a place of you know isolated quote unquote wilderness and my hosts and I lived with different families kind of across the class spectrum. So from fairly poor uh, smallholders um, who'd made some cash through migrant um, work work um, abroad and in, in, in Turkey's larger cities to the wealthy uh, landowners who are also the kind of political uh, ruling class in, in the, in the region, in the village at least. And, uh, and families in between, uh, including those, who had all migrated to uh, cities working as civil servants and then had returned to the Delta after retirement, rebuilding the ancestral home and kind of staking a claim on their village. So different kinds of perspective on this like rural environment. And it was important for me to complement what so far had been a work mostly tracing uh, experts and the parties of expertise to understanding what it means to be a small, you know, capitalist farmers, farmer in the 21st century. And what does it mean to cultivate land that is deeply shaped by the wetlands um, underneath and the wetlands around it uh, and the wetland regulation that limits um, the kind of productive activities, but also the everyday activities that farmers are able to engage in. So this was part of the work. And then um, to follow this categories and mobilities, I did some archival work in the state archives in Ankara. They have an amazing um, collection of various documents that trace the, the drainage and transformation of other Turkish wetlands in the 20th century and not just Gidiz and Kuzuramak. Uh, it's somewhat patchy, but richer than I thought it would be. And um, the, the Office of, of Wetlands um, Management, which is nested in well, it had been nested in different kinds of ministries at the, as the ministry a configuration in Turkey has shifted, but um, it's also in Ankara and they gave me basically uh, access to any printed material on the Turkish wetland produced since the 90s. A really interesting kind of change of representation of, of, of um, a state perspective on the wetlands and their values. There's been the office of, of Ramsar and IUCN in Switzerland that hold... Um, kind of a global database of wetlands and they have a fairly small turkey box <laughs> and various kind of field reports 
and documents and old draft of management plans from some of the wetland experts, Turkish and European that I interviewed and, and talked with. So it's a fairly eclectic collection of documents that really helped me situate my ethnography and make it um, situated in the context of, of these entanglements, um, particularly since some of the um, connections between right, humans and, and, and animals are staked to understandings of, uh, of science. And there are particular debates about um, specific animals in the wetlands and, and what they do and, and their environmental impact of, of their practices. And uh, to focus on these local disagreements uh, about um, a scientific understanding of these practices, I, I followed, you know, took part in meetings and I also looked at various documented presentations and scientific articles that debated some of the uh, more kind of minute points of um, the ecologies of the Kidis and Kizaramak. So it's a fairly um, multi-sided research, though confined to these two places. And um, I spent more time in the archives that I initially uh, envisioned mm -hmm. doing, but it was um, always in conversation with my ethnographic material and a kind of iterative approach. So some insights emerging from my ethnography, then I, I would try and, and, and think through them with the archival work. And I think this is a little bit reflected in my in my writing. Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll end here, but feel free to ask a follow-up. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I actually do have a follow-up question. Uh, so in the books, we also see some of your drawings. And I was curious as to whether you see drawing as a method or how it enriched your work. I wish it was more thought out than that. I'm a doodler. I like to doodle and sketch. And I was trying to understand and learn to recognize the birds that will be found in different seasons in the two delta, because part of my research interlocutors were local ornithologists. And I was trying to help out or following along and kind of understand uh, why it mattered if certain birds would be in the delta or not. And um, trying to trying to learn uh, to recognize birds meant to learn to, to see them in really uh, harsh conditions of, of light. You don't actually get to see the birds, obviously, as they would be in a picture book. is more like getting a sense of what birds you might encounter at a particular season in time of the day and, and what distinct features they might hold. And so to, as part of this learning practice, I would kind of sketch what I had learned during the day. Um, but uh, nature photography is really an important reason why middle-class urban residents might travel to places like the Kusurak Delta and the Gadiz Delta. And one of my interlocutors uh, in Samsun is a very um, passionate nature photographer. And I spent uh, some time with him driving along the Delta and he taught me or tried to teach me how to take wetland photographs. And I was really interested in this kind of aesthetic appeal of the agrarian wetland for, from someone who doesn't live in the wetland, who uh, doesn't have a, a farming background, but who is a, a devout kind of visitor and has established over time friendships and, and amicable relations with, with some of the farmers uh, and fishermen in the Delta. And so he gave me a permission to publish 
some of these images in black and white, unfortunately, in the book. And they were important uh, for me to show one reason why um, a certain, certain kind of like urban middle class uh, stake in the wetland as a place of aesthetic co- contemplation of, of this kind of agrarian livelihoods. And I tried to convey that um, a little bit, though, not through my own photography. That's wonderful. Um, that's very helpful to know, especially for those of us who are thinking about how to visually accompany our writing. So thanks a lot for sharing that. Um, and my last question is about the future. <laughs> so what is next for you? And what are some new projects or questions that you're engaging with, even though it might be difficult to envision under these current circumstances? <laughs> yeah, so the research project I had started uh, before the COVID pandemic, it's about um, local heirloom seeds. And um, they're an interesting object because they've been at the same time kind of marginalized in seed markets in Turkey, but many other uh, countries worldwide, particularly in the global south, where countries have established uh, seed legislations that privilege hybrid and certified variety. At the same time that this local heirloom, regional, um, open pollination garden seeds have become culturally really important kind of across the political spectrum. And so... I was interested in, in tracking that and, and in tracking the changing politics of these garden seeds as they refract different kinds of uh, politics and claims about community and history and race and migration and placemaking. So that's a project um, I'd started on. Um, it, so far, I've done a little research around Izmir and the countryside. I'll probably expand to other sides uh, across the Mediterranean as well as seeds travel. So that, that, that that's the next project in the future and uh, probably continue to pursue questions of wetlands and water in other locations as well. I'm sure our listeners would agree that we'll be looking forward to that book. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you very much, Dr. Scaramelli, for joining us and your insights. Thank you, Eliza, and thank you for your fantastic questions and for a really productive conversation. (laughs) It was my pleasure. I'm your host, Aliza Erjan. This discussion of how to make a wetland, water and moral ecology in Turkey, published by Stanford University Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. <laughs>